0: Chapter 3, Part 4. Francis found it very difficult to cope with any of it and decided to stay in bed and not go to work. This lasted for around four months. Things were getting a bit desperate when finally one day his boss, Stuart, came to see him and talked him into getting up out of bed and going back to work. Francis stopped dealing and never did again, and I was so thankful for that, even though we still had very expected heroin habits. Our children were growing up fast. We we bought them a trampoline and a tent to play within the backyard. Marjorie started to walk and was surrounded by our love. She was such a shy little one, an angel who brought us all much joy. She connected the whole family together by her bloodline and I felt a little bit more secure in that knowledge. One afternoon the girls came running in and told us that James had climbed a huge tree in our backyard and he was stuck and he couldn't find his way back down. Francis and I went to have a look, but he was perched on a branch about six metres high the ground, and we couldn't climb up and just kept telling him that if he got up then he could get back down, and he finally did. He was so brave and full of courage. Marjorie was 18 months old when she fell very ill with a bad case of croup. She could hardly breathe and I was very frightened, but tried not to show it. Francis told me to take her into the bathroom and run the shower hot so that she could breathe in the steam, but it didn't help much, so after an hour we took her to the hospital. They gave her ventilator, through a little mask and I stayed overnight with her until she was better the next day. Christmas was a wonderful time of year and we always had a real tree. Then Francis helped James set up. Then Francis helped James set up his new scarlet Cheek racing car set on his bedroom floor. Mum and Mary and Bernadette would come over and spoil the kids. We visited them too sometimes and kept in touch seeing them about once a month and on birthdays and at Easter time. Frances's mother flew over from Perth for another visit. One night after we had eaten dinner, I must have said something wrong again because Francis was extremely angry with me. I put Marjorie in her stroller and left. It was about 8 o'clock at night, so I walked to Manny and Paddy's home in like about 10 minutes away. I stayed there for a couple of hours until I thought it was safe to go back. Then Manny drove us home. Frances's mum, Madge, acted as though nothing had happened, and I always wondered why she did that. I felt worthless again, but another snort of heroin helped me bury it deep down. When our lease ran out after a year, we looked for a larger home and moved to Croydon Park, 10 minutes away, into a beautiful Federation house with three bedrooms and a sunroom. James had to change schools again, his fifth one, and he started Year 5 at St Francis Xavier's. I was happy that he was in a Catholic school now. While he was attending Haberfield Demonstration School, his teacher spoke with me and told me her son was on Ritalin and that she thought James should be taking it too. I knew a bit about attention deficit disorder, but not much, and that Ritalin was speed for children. When I spoke with Francis about it, he said no. James was a little boy, a very normal child who loved life, but when I said no to his teacher... She told the teachers and children and the canteen staff not to serve him sugar anymore. I think he suffered for being singled out and that made me feel very sad. Francis' court case had begun and he found, through his contacts at, the, at the, the markets, a Queen's counsel to represent him. His name was Stan and for the next three years he kept getting the case adjourned and moved until he found a sympathetic judge. Francis also paid the police $10,000 and he was told to report to them once a week, which he did. I felt pregnant again, and Nicola was born on New Year's Day, 1989. She was an easy baby who loved her milk and slept like an angel, and I loved feeding her. The clinic told us that methadone would not pass through my breast milk, but I knew it was affecting her. Just before she was due for a feed, she would be wide awake, and as soon as I fed her, she would go straight to sleep. Francis found a new dealer who called himself Clint, and he used the needle. Francis let him stay in our home for a couple of weeks, and during that time he managed to talk Francis into thinking that using the needle was cheaper than snorting. So we began to inject heroin. Nicola was around eight months old when I had my first bad taste. I had no idea what was happening, but we found out quickly that it is when a germ gets into your bloodstream, either from a dirty spoon, needle, filter, water or a piece of skin. Straight away I started to feel really cold to the point that my teeth were chattering. Then I got a piercing migraine and kept vomiting green bar until I could only dry wretch. Frances was all right but I was in a very bad way and lay dead under quilts with a bucket next to me for eight hours. Our friend Michael was visiting at the time and I remember him holding Nicolene in his arms to help look after her for me. After that I asked Francis to tell Clint to leave. I did not want him living in our home at all. James adored his sisters and covered them with love. He came home one afternoon during the school holidays from 5 Dog where he had been playing video games at the video hire shop and told us that a couple of kids who were a few years older than him had taken his $2. Francis told us all to get in the car and he drove there straight away. He went inside and confronted the boys but lost the plot completely, yelling and screaming abuse at them and pushing and shoving them all around. He lost. He's out of control behavior frightened me and I kept saying let's go. The guy who worked there told Francis to take it outside. I was in shock as we left at what had just happened because they were only kids. Nicola was 18 months old and she was playing with Marjorie in the backyard. It was about 11 o'clock in the morning. Francis had just got home from work and we had our shot of heroin. The car was idling in the driveway because the battery was charging before we had to leave to go to the methadone program. I thought it was a bit dangerous with the girls playing in the backyard so I opened the driver's door and led across the seat to change the gear stick into park. It had been in neutral but because it was a V8 engine as soon as I moved it into park it went through reverse and the car took off backwards with me half in and out with me half in and half out of the open driver's door Nicola was playing behind the car near the left-hand side of the boot and I screamed out to Francis. He was standing on the back steps of the house about six metres away from her. The car finally came to a stop as it crashed into the wooden fence after careering down the driveway near the front of the house. I looked up and Nicola was safe and sound in Frances' arms. She was fine and didn't have a scratch on her. I was a bit shaken up at what had just taken place. God had intervened and it was a miracle. Francis found a new dealer, another young Italian boy also called John. They all called themselves John. He gave us credit all the time and home delivered as well. This was too easy for us and Francis began to score twice a day. The heroin was really low grade and didn't work much of the time. He was 99% sugar and our bill went through the roof and pretty soon we owed him $20,000. Financially, it was impossible to keep up. Francis came home from work one morning and told me the liquidators had come in and closed his business down. Our home phone had been disconnected for about a week and a company at the markets had been trying to reach Francis in regards to an outstanding $10,000 debt on his account. When they were unable to reach him, they began legal proceedings. The liquidators repossessed Francis' car and he hired a little red car. The original owner of Francis's business bought the business from the liquidators and hired Francis to stay on as manager. At the methadone program, we met two addicts, Pat and Lena. They lived in Newtown and in a city suburb and managed rehearsal studios in St Peter's close by. They were musicians who played in the underground scene and they were heroin dealers too. Lena managed a shop on King Street that sold retro clothing and antiques and Pat had huge fish tanks full of beautiful tropical fish. We would go there to score but they made us wait in a side street for hours on end. They had no sense of time. Francis would lose his patience and tell me to go to the phone box to call them again and again. They always said they were coming soon but soon to them was anything between. minutes and two hours. Pat would finally show up in his little old-fashioned black car that I had to get into and then he would drive around the block and drop me back to Francis and the children who waited in our little car. Sometimes we were $20 short and I would get so stressed that he would refuse to give us the heroin but I tried not to let it show. As soon as we had heroin, Francis would drive straight home and we mixed the heroin in our spoons and injected it up as soon as we walked into our house. Things got a bit easier when Pat and Lena let us go to their shop to score there. In the street behind their shop was a small, small, quiet park with swings and a slippery dip, and we waited there so that Marjorie and Nicola could play. Pat and Lena were night owls and kept very different hours from us. They slept for most of the day. If it was a rainy day, then we would buy Kentucky fried chicken for the children and walk up and down King Street looking at shop windows. One day we were all walking together as a family when I noticed a guy checking Francis out. I felt invisible again and I spoke with Francis about it, but he did, but he said he didn't notice. Mum came to visit one morning while Francis was still at work. I told her about the court case. I had no friends to speak with about it but realised as soon as I had told her that I had made a huge mistake. She couldn't understand and was disgusted with both of us. Bernadette was suffering from anorexia at the time and my mess was too much for mum to cope with. At the time Bernadette was working at a bank in Minnie, where we grew up and had been held up twice in the space of a week at point-blank range by men using shotguns. She was also always very thin and now weighed about 34 kilos. Our brother Anthony came to Sydney and took her to hospital and Mum and Mary helped her. Then she gained a tiny bit of weight, but she never fully recovered and I felt sad that I was in no shape to help her in any way. End of Chapter 3 Chapter 4, 30 to 40 Years the year was 1990 and I felt pregnant again. I didn't use contraceptive, contraception because our drug dependence meant we had no sex life. This baby was going to be Francis's sixth and my fourth child. Marley came to spend Christmas Day 1990 with us and we drove her home afterwards. Not long after she asked Francis for a divorce. Francis then suggested that we should get married. But I said no, I knew that I could never marry Francis because I believe that you are married for life and if the marriage doesn't work then you cannot just keep marrying. Francis asked me a few more times over the following years but my answer was always the same. We met a couple of heroin addict dealers through Pat and Lena. Pete and his girlfriend told us about a man who was looking for a courier to do a drug run to Thailand and back. We needed the money so badly, so I said I would do it, without any thought. I was going to be paid $10,000 for the run, but Francis couldn't go because he had a record. After we met the man and Francis spoke with him, he told me that I couldn't go because Thailand has the death penalty for traffickers and Francis was concerned that my methadone use would come up when I checked in at the airport. I'm very thankful for Francis' decision. Even though I was full of false courage, deep down I was frightened. Patches of dry skin began to appear on my face. So Francis and I went to see a GP whose clinic was in the street next to ours. He was young and confident about his new laser technology and seemed to know what he was doing. So we trusted him. But after he had burned the dry patches on my face, they got a lot worse. A year later, I went to see a dermatologist who took a biopsy from my back and results came back that I had discoid lupus. It is an autoimmune disorder that is caused initially from severe sun damage in childhood and then activated by extreme stress. I had to use block out and wear a hat and sunglasses and avoid being outdoors, especially in direct sunlight. I was supposed to look after myself, but I never did. James was turning 12 years old, and we held a party for him and a couple of his friends in our backyard. They all had lots of fun in the pool, and mum and my sisters and Andy also came. Everything changed very quickly. Not long after that, Francis lost the plot with James and beat him black and blue over the bath. It was humiliating, and James ran away. We went to look for him and found him at Ashfield Moor. A couple of weeks later, a couple of weeks later, Francis lost it again. This time it was when he was dropping the girls back to Marley's. He told the girls that he didn't want them to come over anymore, and he backhanded James in the mouth and split his lip. I had stayed at home with Marjorie and Nicola. James ran away again, but this time we couldn't find him and I started to panic, so I rang my younger sister Mary for help and advice. She called the police. Around midnight, the police found James near the airport and brought him back home to us. I was in a state of shock and had been imagining all sorts of bad things that could have happened to my little son. I was relieved that he seemed okay. He told us that he ran away to join the circus and that he did and that he didn't want to live with Frances and me anymore. After that, he went to stay with his aunties and Nana at Cherrybrook, about 40 minutes from where we lived. Not long after, I had a terrible falling out with my mum and sisters. They bought James a new pair of very expensive sneakers and began court proceedings for James to go and live with Andy and his wife Camilla. James came back to stay with us after a week at Cherrybrook, And the Department of Community Services came around to speak with Francis and I. They arranged for James to stay at a refuge about 10 minutes away for three weeks. I missed him so much, and we visited him every night at six o'clock with Marjorie and Nicola for an hour or so. Then he was allowed to return home with us until the court made a decision about who he was going to live with. One of our social workers was, was a lady called Wendy. She was a friend of Bruce and Jenny, my former landlords from the island. Wendy was very kind to me and I liked her. I was two weeks overdue and the doctors told me that my baby was in the breech position. Around about the time James ran away was the time when the baby's head should have gone down to face the right way to be born. But my baby didn't turn and I can understand why he didn't want to come out into our world. The nurses at the hospital tried to talk me into having my baby naturally, but I refused. He was born by caesarean section, and after I woke up from the anaesthetic, the nurses told me that he wasn't breech. However, his back was wedged in the place where his head should have been. Francis's mother flew over from Perth to help us look after Marjorie and Nicola while I was in hospital. Francis left for work at three every morning, so I asked him to give Nicola Panadol if he saw she had any trouble sleeping. I was worried that she may withdraw from methadone because I could not feed her while I was in hospital with David and I knew she was getting a little bit of methadone through my milk. When Francis came to visit, he told me that Nicola was wide awake when he left for work that morning and that she was sitting in a corner but he didn't give her any Panadol. That made me sad because she was such a good child So peaceful and content, she loved going to the drawer next to my hospital bed to find the little packets of cornflakes and cereals and jams and spreads that I had put there for her. They all adored David. He was such a beautiful, healthy baby. On the second night, though, his cry was very desperate and agitated, and I couldn't console him. I knew he was suffering withdrawals, so I rang Francis around 8 o'clock and I cried a lot as I let him know that our son may be suffering. I let the nurses know, but they said to wait till the morning before they would give him any medication and that they would evaluate him overnight. By morning he was fine and didn't need the medication. God is so good and merciful, nothing like us, and I know that he had helped baby David, but I still didn't believe he helped me. I had to stay in hospital for a week because of the caesarean section. About the fourth evening in hospital, Francis, his mother Marjorie, Nicola, and James walked into my room. And I could tell straight away that something was wrong. Francis' mother looked white as a sheet. Francis told me that our landlord had come to our house during that day and made some rude comments about how he was going to get me. And then Francis lost the plot again and lifted him up over his shoulders, carried him to the footpath out the front of our home, and dropped him onto a pile of rubbish that was there for the council cleaner. Francis threatened the landlord's two sons as well. We brought David home from the hospital and Francis's mother left to go back to Perth. After dinner one night, I saw Nicola, who was two years old, with an open bottle of our methadone takeaways. We kept our bottles in the fridge and she had taken one out and given some to baby David. Methadone looks and tastes and smells disgusting and even though Francis and I were pretty sure that David hadn't swallowed any, I could smell it near his little mouth so I called the poison hotline and they told me to take him to hospital. The doctor gave him charcoal to absorb any that he may have in his tummy but he couldn't keep it down and was covered in black stuff. It was around 9.30pm and our poor little son was exhausted and after crying a lot he just closed his eyes and was quiet. He looked unconscious and I asked the doctor how we knew whether he was sleeping or not. I felt so bad and just wept, probably from exhaustion and the sadness of my world. But David was okay and I took him back home after another hour or so. And we never kept methadone in the fridge again. An eviction notice came in the mail. Not long after that and after living at Croydon Park for three years, the landlord wanted his property back. We had fallen behind in the rent and Francis borrowed $2,000 from his mother to pay it. But even so, the real estate agent told us that the sheriff was coming around to change the locks and make sure we had left the premises. David was six weeks old and Francis couldn't deal with any of it and left me with the children there alone to pack a few things. He told me that he would wait in the car down the street and we should meet him there. So with David in his little baby basket, I packed a couple of bags of clothes for us and together we waited for the sheriff and his deputy. They told me we were not allowed to return for any reason and that the Tenancies tribunal would set a date and time for us to come back and remove all our possessions. Then we walked down the road together to where Francis was waiting and we drove to Dural. Jim and Kate told us we could stay with them for a week and had to look for a place to live. Our friend Michael, meanwhile, went to Croydon Park because he thought we needed help, his help to move out. He didn't know about the orders that had been put in place by the tribunal. When he saw that no one was home, he broke in through the back door and decided he would start moving our things onto the footpath. But by the time we found out what he had done, it was too late. Nearly all our things had been taken by people walking or driving past. We lost a beautiful red cedar chest of drawers with all David's new baby clothes in it and the girls' clothes and toys. We had bought Nicola a beautiful musical carousel for her birthday and that was gone too. I felt so sad for the children. The real estate agents thought it was Francis and me that re-entered the property and they got us in trouble. Kate and Jim were having problems in their relationship because Kate had met a man who had been in jail and was an alcoholic. She wanted to leave Jim to be with him. Jim only bought no frills generic groceries and everything in the kitchen cupboards was black and white. Kate and I thought this was funny because he had plenty of money and was quite wealthy, owning two other properties. David worked during the night for his feeds and I stumbled around in the dark trying not to disturb anyone because I couldn't find the light switches. After I changed and fed him, I would give Nicola a little feed too and they always went back straight back to sleep. They were such good babies. But I hadn't weaned Nicola because I was overwhelmed with everything that was going on in our world. And when my milk came in for David, she thought it was wonderful. I always believed that being selfless was not looking after yourself and I had become very good at that. Deep, deep down in the core of my soul, I felt that I was of no value, worthless and less than nothing. After Francis finished at work, he came to pick us up at Dural, and we drove to the clinic to drink our methadone. It had been a year since Francis had a the small red car and the owner wanted it back. So Francis bought a light yellow, very old Datsun 120Y. We had to give the clinic a urine sample once a week and they sent them off to pathology to test for traces of heroin and methadone and metabolites. Because we still used heroin every day, I waited till Marjorie or Nicola needed to go to the toilet, then I would catch their wee, put it in a silk container with a tiny bit of ours in it, not enough for the heroin to come back positive and just enough to get the metabolites to show up. Then I put some boiling water in the bottom of a saucepan and put it on the floor of the front seat of the car between my feet with a container wrapped in, four in hot water. When we went into the toilets at the clinic, we emptied the wee into the label container the nurse gave us, then walked out and handed it to them. This seemed to work very well for a while until they installed cameras in the toilets and caught us. Francis had always had a problem using public toilets and he found it very difficult, but I didn't care one bit. The staff thought it was just another excuse, but Francis battled through it somehow. If we couldn't give them a urine sample, they punished us by not giving us our takeaways. Because we had been evicted, it was difficult to find a real estate land or a landlord who would trust us to sign a lease. One of Francis's contacts at the markets pointed him to a real estate in Five Dock and after a couple of weeks we moved into a small three-bedroom house in Harris Road. The girls and David shared a room and James came back to live with us and slept in the third room, which was only big enough to fit his single bed. It was tiny, but I loved having James back home near us all. Most nights, though, the girls slept in our bed. James started Year 7 at a Catholic college, in Ashfield, Francis knew his principal, Peter, from Western Australia, where they had both attended the same high school. During James' first year, a 12 year old boy killed himself with a shotgun. And when I asked why, James told me that it was because he wanted to become a priest, but his parents had said he couldn't. It was very sad. And after that, the principal and the parish priest both left. James made his confirmation at St Francis Xavier's and Nicola was christened there too. We only attended mass sporadically, at Easter, Christmas and for school events. Around about nine o'clock one morning I remember the sky being so blue. A man knocked on the door and handed me some legal papers which I had to sign. They were from my mum and sisters. I read them and realised they had begun legal proceedings to take James away from me and to ask the courts to make Andy and Camilla his legal guardians. Their affidavits were full of distortions and lies. They accused me of attacking Bernadette with a knife. The truth was that Bernadette had walked into our home not long after James ran away and it was dinner time. I was slicing the kids toast into little fingers with a butter knife to eat with that soft, as they sat around the dining room table. I reacted badly to Bernadette intruding on us all and singling James out and told her to get out. So I still had the butter knife in my hand as I told her to leave. And walked her to the front door. They also wrote that they had seen cigarette burns on James's hands. To this day, James says that those blisters were from riding his BMX bike around the neighbourhood. I was an emotional wreck and couldn't comprehend what kind of minds could even imagine that I would burn my little son, who I loved so much. I had some pretty serious issues, but I was not a monster. These false accusations crushed me and I put David in the pram and walked with the girls to the corner phone box to ring Francis. I was sobbing uncontrollably. He tried to be sympathetic and attempted to calm me down.